Well, as, as Trey prayed, thank God that we woke up this morning. We are thankful for that. But recognizing that earthly life is not the be-all and end-all, we don't live for that. We are, I think, more thankful this morning that God woke us up and brought us to be with his people and to be underneath his word. It was nice last week to be here and to sit under preaching, to, to hear preaching uh, here at Four Corners. This is the second time I've done that in the last year and a half, so it's something that, that I really treasure just to be able to kind of be out there listening and, and uh, as someone else preaches. What happened, I should explain briefly, is we, so we had an elders retreat planned for last Sunday, and uh, about the middle of the week, we had some scheduling conflicts and uh, so, so we, had to, we had to cancel that, reschedule it for a later time. Of course, we had already booked uh, Cameron to come and preach, and I'm very grateful that he came to do that. I was telling someone after the service that uh, we, the elder retreat got canceled because we had some conflicts, and I thought, that needs to be reworded a little bit, especially in light of today as we think about peacemakers. So we did not have any conflicts among the elders. We had scheduling conflicts for a couple of the elders. So we had to reschedule. But uh, I was grateful to Cameron for coming and, uh, and preaching. And what a blessing it, I'm sure, is for him to come back to Four Corners and to be able to, to see uh, many of you who were here when he was an interim pastor here uh, a while ago. So let's go ahead and turn to our passage for today. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. We're in the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, our series. I want to go ahead and start before we say anything further and just read this passage. Won't be covering all of it today, but this is the passage that we have been working on and will continue to for a little while longer. Matthew 5, verses 3 to 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the perfect, sufficient, holy word of our God. So let's pray and ask that by his spirit we will understand it and apply it, and that we will be transformed by it. Our Heavenly Father, Lord God, we are humbled by the privilege that we have to come together and to worship you as your people. God, we recognize that what we're doing here this morning is being done all around the world, or has been done, or will be done, depending on time zones, Lord, is... is being done today on the Lord's day all across this world, a testimony to the fact that you, the sovereign God, God are a God who, that you are a God who saves people. 
You change people. And God, we're here today because you've changed us by your grace and not by anything we've done or anything we've concocted in our minds, but because of your pure mercy and grace before the foundation of the world as you chose us in him for salvation and as you, as you ministered that salvation to mankind at the cross and the resurrection of your son and as you ministered that salvation, as you applied that salvation to each of our hearts in due course as we came to know Jesus as our savior. So, Father, it's on that that we sit here and stand here this morning. And, God, we're just so grateful to you for the salvation which you have brought us in Jesus. And, God, we're, we're, de- we're desiring this morning that you speak to us through your word. We know that Christ is exalted in the scriptures. And as Jesus speaks to us this morning from his Sermon on the Mount, we know that he, as the king, is lifted up. And so we pray this morning that we will listen to the king that we will hear his voice, that we will respond to his voice, that we will not just hear it, but we will do what he tells us to do. God, help us to be those who follow what we find here in the Beatitudes. We ask for grace in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we started this process of digging into the Beatitudes. The week before that, we introduced this section by looking at a number of things as we took sort of a bird's eye view as we flew over and did an overview of this passage. But last week we started digging into these individual beatitudes or what I have called characteristics of citizens. And last week we covered the first four. And I I explained how when you look at these in the original language, each of the first four begins with a P sound, a Greek pie. And so that tells us that those kind of go together. They fit together. Not only do we see this in the alliteration as we find with the first letter, but we also see this in the overarching theme for these first four Beatitudes. And then we talked about being needy before God. And that's what we find in these first four. So we looked at the emptiness the tears, the lowliness, the longing. As we come to these, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So the emptiness, the tears, the lowliness, and the longing. And today we come to the next three Beatitudes, starting in verse seven, going through to verse nine, and then we'll cover, the next time we come back to this passage, we will cover verses 10 to 12, which looks at Christians being persecuted, those who are citizens of this kingdom being persecuted and how they are to respond in the midst of that. And so today I want to look at three of these characteristics or three things that we see from these characteristics, and they are the extending the sincerity, and the reconciling. I think that is what we find as we come to verses seven to nine. So let's go ahead and jump in to the first one, the extending. The extending. And here we have verse seven. And this is what it says. The fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So what is mercy? I'll give you a basic kind of textbook definition, so to speak. Mercy is a concern for people in their need. It is to have pity on others in the midst of their misery or helplessness. And so uh, commentators try to differentiate between grace and mercy. What are these two things? We oftentimes see them being listed by Paul in a greeting. So he'll say grace to you and mercy, and he'll also say peace, 
But grace and mercy being listed side by side tells us that they're not the same thing. These aren't just church words that we gloss over and think, oh, that's so nice. Grace, mercy, it's all sort of the same thing. Mercy and grace are slightly distinct, but of the same essence, ultimately. And so here's a definition that one commentator gives. Grace answers to the undeserving. So we've talked about grace being an unmerited favor from God. Grace answers to the undeserving. Mercy answers to the miserable. So insofar as God is gracious to us, he gives us things as those who do not deserve them. And insofar as God is merciful to us, he gives us things in the midst of our misery, in the midst of our helplessness that reverse that situation. And so God's mercy is his pity on us. One of the books that I often use as I kind of talk with couples about marriage, and, and this is a book that we talked quite a bit about when we went through our series on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 6, 4, is John Piper's book, This Momentary Marriage. And if you, maybe you're having trouble in your marriage or maybe you're, you're about to, to get married or you just you know, want to know kind of the theology behind marriage, this is an excellent book. It really is quite, it's, it's, it's good in the sense that it gives us a lot of understanding of the gospel basis for marriage, but it also gives us some practical insight into how these things apply and work themselves out in our lives. And so this is one of, uh, one of the, the best books I think that you can go to for marriage. And in chapters three and four of this book, so chapter three is entitled God's Showcase of Covenant Keeping Grace, and chapter four is entitled Forgiving and Forbearing. In these chapters, I think Piper sheds some light on something that is very important as we think about this idea of mercy. And he uses as his, as his base text, the text that he draws from Colossians chapter three, verses 12 to nine. I mean, it's verses 12 to 19. And here's what he says in this passage, or here's what it says in this passage. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So also you must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And then that passage, that's the context for the subsequent passage, which goes on to talk about marriage. So it's immediately after this heavy gospel passage that we get at the beginning of Colossians 3, that later on we get Paul's instruction to wives. And so it's out of that context that he goes on to say, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So what is Piper's point? Why am I bringing this up at this point? Piper's point is to say that our experience of God's grace, which we find at the beginning of that passage, is something that must be extended outward in marriage. So there's a vertical reception of God's grace, and that grace, that graciousness, works itself out horizontally in marriage. And that's exactly the development of Paul's thinking in Colossians 
chapter 3. So as God's chosen ones, as his holy ones, as his beloved ones, those who have been forgiven, we go out with meek hearts, compassionate hearts, kind hearts, forgiving hearts, and we do this very same thing to our spouse. And that is what we find here when we come to the fifth beatitude. What precedes being merciful in this passage, as we come to verse seven, what precedes being merciful goes all the way back to poor in spirit. So what do we find as we come to the, to the fifth beatitude? Blessed are the merciful. What is everything that's gone before that? Essentially, it's this. We've gone from poverty of spirit being empty before God, totally recognizing that there's nothing good in us to draw from, that we are utterly in need of God if we are to have anything. We've gone from that to mourning over sin, to a lowly view of ourselves before God and others, to a pursuit of God filling us with that which we do not have in ourselves. Blessed are those who pursue, who long for, Blessed are those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We begin with someone who has absolutely nothing in himself. He realizes that. He goes on from that to a view of himself that is meek and lowly before God and before others, asking God, God, I do not have righteousness within myself. Fill me, because if you don't give it to me, I won't have it. And that's the context for this fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful. So how do we put it all together? How do we make sense of all of this? Essentially, it's this. The citizen of this kingdom is most fundamentally one who has been shown mercy. If you wanted to kind of understand the essence of a Christian, what is a Christian at the core? Very basic level. A Christian is one to whom God has shown mercy. Period. A Christian is one who has received mercy. So we encountered last week this parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18 between a Pharisee who goes to the temple and he begins to pray to the Lord and he starts to kind of thank God that he's not like this other guy who's over on the other side of the temple praying, this tax collector. He's saying, thank you, God, that I'm here dressed so nicely in my fine robes, praying to you, so holy and righteous. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that wretched sinner over there, that tax collector. Thank you, God, that I, that I do all of these things, that I tithe and I give and I'm just, I fast and I'm just so holy. This is a man who is not poor in spirit, but the other guy is. And what does he say, the tax collector? He comes up to the temple and he beats his chest before God. He won't even get close. He doesn't even look up. He stands there and he beats his chest before God. And he says, oh God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Compared to what that other guy had to say. This is every Christian. Every Christian is in this boat. One to whom God has shown mercy. And as one who has been shown mercy he or she cannot help but to naturally extend that very same mercy out to others. Think about it this way. The, at, at the heart of your DNA as a Christian is mercy. mercy. Mercy should run through all of your veins and all of your spiritual arteries. That is, that is the essence of who you are, one who's been shown mercy. And so it is just natural. It just makes sense that everything about your life is going to be characterized by mercy. 
in how that gets bent out or extended outward horizontally towards other people. An instance of that would be Piper's example of marriage. But more broadly here, it takes shape in all of life. So let me give you an illustration from the Bible of mercy. Mercy kind of played out or what the relationship is between receiving mercy and showing mercy and how those two things fit so nicely together. So on one occasion, we read about it in Matthew 18. Peter asks about the extent of the forgiveness that should be shown. And he asks a question much like our children ask us. So we say, for you talk to a kid, you say you need to share, you need to share your toys with your friends. We see this worked out at Gospel Community Group every Thursday night. The lack of sharing that we see among all the kids, all of them. Um, and, you know, he took my sword or she took my, or whatever. Uh, I hear that from Jake on the drive home. That is, that is, the, that is the way it works. That is, uh, that is the way kids are. And kids will oftentimes say things like, well, how, you know, I mean, how many times should I share? How many times should I do this? You know, they're kind of keeping track because when they get to a certain point, they're done. They're not doing that anymore. They just want to know legally what is required so that after that, they're free to do whatever they please. And Peter similarly asks Jesus the question, how many times? How many times should, should I, Jesus, forgive that person if he sins against me? Seven? Seven. It must be seven times. And Jesus gives him a number that really is irrelevant because it's meant to just convey endlessness. 77 times, Jesus says, not just seven times. In other words, Peter's got his little list here of seven. Jesus balls it up and throws it away, throws it to the wind and says, there is no limit on forgiveness. And immediately after that conversation between the master and his disciple, between the Lord Jesus and Peter, he goes on to tell this parable. So there's a king who decides he's going to settle all of his debts. Not those he owes, but those who owe him. And he's gonna round up these people and make them pay what they owe. And so we have a king and we have a servant. And this servant is said to owe this king 10,000 talents. Now, if you don't read the little footnote, and actually you just don't have, you don't have to get a commentary, you just read the footnote in the ESV and you will see what 10,000 talents was. One talent is 20 years wages, 20 years wages, which means that 10,000 talents is 200,000 years wages. That's how much this servant owes the king. That's, that's serious. I mean, you might think you're in debt. This guy's in super debt. I mean, this is, this is a debt he cannot he cannot repay. And in fact, the numbers really are irrelevant once again here because this idea of, of, of 10,000 is the largest numeral for which a Greek term exists. And so it's meant to just give you the, the uttermost. He, he is in debt to the uttermost. And not only that, but a talent is the largest kind of currency, bit of money. And so it's the, it's the most amount of money that could possibly be owed, I think is really what's being communicated. But that's even communicated in the number. 200,000 years of wages. That's inconceivable. One commentator said this is like saying a zillion in our context. A zillion. This is what he owes. 
So what do you think the servant does? He falls on his face. He begins to plead to this king. Oh, have patience with me. I'll pay it back. Of course, the king knows he can't pay it back. And what does the king say to him? Verse 27, and out of pity, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Wow, all that money. Don't worry about it. It's gone. So what does this guy do? So he leaves, this servant, he leaves and he goes and he finds one of his servants. He has servants too. He goes and finds one of his servants and this servant owes him 100 denarii. Now, how much is that? Well, one denarius is a day's wage for a laborer. A laborer, 100 days wages, 200,000 years of wages versus about three months of wages, and he seizes him and starts choking him. That's incredible when you read this. He's just been forgiven all of this. He grabs this servant who owes him about three months worth of pay, and he starts strangling him, saying, give me my money. Give me my money now. And this servant says essentially the same thing that he had said earlier to his master, pleading for patience, pleading, 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 and he refused and threw him in prison. Done. Done. Forget this guy. He owed me three months. So what happens? Well, there are other servants who see this happening and they go and they report this to the master. And this is what the master, the, the original master, the king, he calls back that servant, that servant whom he had forgiven all that money, that 200,000 years of wages. He calls him back in front of him. And this is what he says to him. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. In other words, in your misery, in your helplessness, you pleaded with me. I forgave it all. I didn't make you pay it back. I just forgave it. I just wiped it away. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. In other words, that guy's always gonna be in jail because he'll never, ever, ever, ever pay it back. Jesus goes on to say this about the parable. So also, hear this, people of God, hear this. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's an incredible parable. And Jesus says, this is a parable of the kingdom of God, meaning that everything we're reading here about the citizens of the kingdom, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And that is exactly what we find in this beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, does this mean, here's a mistake you can make. Does this mean blessed are the merciful, the reason that they receive mercy. So blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. They'll, re they'll receive mercy because they're merciful. Well, it wouldn't be mercy, right? God doesn't save us because we've been nice to people. He doesn't save us because we've been good to people. He doesn't save us because we've gone out here and forgiven people or been merciful to people. No, God saves us out of his own will and his own mercy. So how are we to understand this? And I think Sinclair Ferguson gives a good statement here. He says this, if we are not merciful, we cannot have received mercy. It goes back to the original point I made. 
that to be one who has received mercy is to be merciful. They just go together. And if both aren't there, there's reason to examine yourself. There's reason for me to examine myself, reason for us to ask ourselves, are we in the faith? If we are not merciful, we cannot have received Christ's mercy and therefore cannot look forward to receiving his mercy in the last judgment. What will be the final judgment on your life? It's coming. It's coming for each of us. We're gonna stand before God, all of us. Romans 14 makes that very clear. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And he ends that chapter by saying, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. In that day, will we be those who demonstrate that we have received mercy by showing mercy? Or will we be those who prove to be counterfeits? Those who say we received mercy, but who really did not. Showing in our lives a lack of mercy and therefore showing that it never existed in our hearts to begin with. So what does this look like for us? What does it look like for us to be merciful? And I think it's at least three things, practically, as we think about how it fleshes itself out in our lives. The first is sympathy for sinners. So when was the last time that you would, I, you know, I'll, I'll give you an, an illustration. I won't, I won't say anything specific here, but I encountered something a couple of weeks ago that I thought was just particularly vile, particularly vile and even irritating, like, like vile, irritating sin in the life of someone else. And your go-to place as a Christian is, is kind of, oh, my goodness. You know, I mean, we just, we just, it's frustrating. We see it, and, and especially if it, if it infringes upon us, if it makes life somehow inconvenient for us or somehow uncomfortable for us, then it particularly becomes something that we're ready to just sort of, cast under the bus, so to speak, and, and, and judge and, and make sure that in our minds we've, we've rendered good judgment on that sinner. That's the kind of thing that we do. We do this even in our culture. I mean, sometimes Christians come on TV and, and they're interviewed by uh, TV personalities, news personalities, and the way that they speak about other people doesn't seem to have very much mercy or sympathy at all. Sympathy for sinners. When you see sinners, as we looked at in Titus, those who are sinning, those who are even sinning against you or whose sins are kind of piling up on you or infringing upon your rights or your space, do you have the mindset of Titus chapter three? Remember, we looked at that. For you, we were all once. We were all once. We were all once like this. And then he goes on to say, but God saved us according to his own mercy. That's why you are not just like that sinner who drives you crazy. That's the only reason. It's not because you're just different and you just, you're just better. It's not the case. It's because God in his mercy saved you, changed you. So I think sympathy for sinners, realizing, man, that's where I was. I was right there, vile wicked, evil, estranged from God, but he showed me grace and mercy. And that's the way we relate to people in our lives who don't know the Lord. That's the way we relate to people in our lives who people maybe like parents, children, brothers and sisters, cousins, 
Family reunions can be times where we just get kind of high and mighty. We start talking with people and, or maybe at work. Maybe you relate to people at work as though you're kind of this different over here. They're over there. Well, actually, they're not over there. They're down there. You're up here. It's easy to fall into this when we don't have mercy, when we don't realize we are those who have been shown mercy. So I think sympathy for sinners is one application there. I think a second is forgiveness for wrongdoers. I want you to notice something in the parable that I just read. How much was it that the servant of the original servant owed? 100 days wages. I want you to see this. That's still a big deal. Understand this. This is very important. It's not as though the servant that was owed the 100 days wages wasn't really wronged in any way. It's not as though he wasn't owed anything. 100 days wages is 100 days wages. It matters. It hurts. It's significant. It's the, the point of the parable is to show the contrast. The point of the parable is to say, look at how much you've been forgiven. And look at how much God is asking you to forgive other people for. That's what the point of the parable is. But, the, but what I want you to see now is that this right here is often significant. It is often significant what we must forgive people for. The things that people do to us, the ways that people wrong us, it hurts. It's significant. And if it's viewed in its own right, maybe we say, no, I can't forgive them for that. I just can't do that. But when it is viewed in light of 200,000 years of wages, it's as nothing. Forgiving people for anything, anything, anything that they could do to us is as nothing compared to what God has forgiven us of. So forgiveness for wrongdoers. And then finally, compassion for suffering. In fact, the word to do pity, or when we, when we get to the, uh, a little bit later in this, in this Sermon on the Mount, we get to chapter six, and we're told that we need to give to the needy, or we're talk, Jesus talks about those who give to the needy. The actual word is related to the word for mercy, and it literally means to do pity, to do mercy. So we give to the needy, that is being merciful. We do mercy, we do pity. And we see this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Luke chapter 10, what happens in the parable of the Good Samaritan? There's this guy, he gets robbed, he gets left for dead. And these two really holy religious guys walk by. They see him, he's right there, he's hurting, he's about to die. There's a priest and a Levite, these are two very religious people. They walk across the street, they get on the other side of the road and they just keep going. They, they can't be bothered with this guy. They're not interested in helping this guy. I mean, in fact, he might just die and that's fine. I don't care. They just keep going. But then there's a Samaritan who was at odds with this man naturally. I mean, there, there, was a, there was a tension there between Jews and Samaritans. This guy does not cross the street. He does not keep going. He came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. His heart was moved by the misery of this individual person. His heart looked at this person and said, I could imagine myself there moved with compassion. And he went to him, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he took him to an end to be cared for. And at the end of this parable, it says this, that he is the one who showed mercy. So what does it mean to show mercy? I think it means sympathy for sinners. 
It means forgiving those who maybe have wronged against us in ways that we just can't even imagine how horrible they've sinned against us. And then it means this kind of compassion for the needy. And let me just put this plug in there. I know Pete will appreciate this, but um, that, this, is, this is one of the main reasons why we're doing When Helping Hurts in our groups. This is one of the main reasons why the gospel community group leaders have been asked to come along last year to a time together where Mike Strain and Pete Benson gave a class. They've been trained in this on When Helping Hurts and what it looks like to help people in a way that does not hurt them. What it looks like to bring the kingdom of God to bear on people who are in misery and in helplessness. And one of the things we've asked gospel community group leaders to do is to implement this training by the end of March. Now, a lot of the gospel community groups are either done or almost done, but if you're not, you know, the hope is that you guys will, that will, will continue to do this by the end of March. But the idea is that we really have some, we put some feet and some hands with what we're reading in this text, that we are a merciful church, a church that looks at people who are in misery and helplessness and in great need and says, we want to be Christ to that person. That's what the When Helping Hurts stuff is about. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're having these presentations by gospel community group leaders. That's why Pete is coming to these various groups and doing that initial training. That's the reason why all the gospel community groups spent uh, an entire day, leaders spent an entire day about a year ago going over this material. This is one of the ways in which we can practically apply the fifth beatitude Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So I have a little heavier emphasis today on this first beatitude, the extending. So don't think that this is a proportion that we're now gonna spend the same amount of time on the second two, don't get worried. So now we move to the second and that is the sincerity, the sincerity. Look at Matthew 5, 8. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The fact that purity of heart is situated right here between mercy and peacemaking, which is the next one we'll look at in a moment, tells us that the emphasis here is on how we treat others. So pure of heart, having a pure heart sandwiched here between mercy and peacemaking suggests for us that this has to do with the horizontal relationships of our lives. That being pure in heart has an immediate effect on those we're around, those we run into from day to day. It has a horizontal impact. And we see this in 1 Peter 1.22. This is what it says there. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So when we read 1 Peter, the idea that we get here is that to have a pure heart is to have sincere and earnest, I love that word, sincere and earnest love for one another. So we automatically know there that this has a, a very clear horizontal application. But as with mercy, and I want you to get this, you can't miss this, as with mercy, we know that how we treat others grows directly out of our relationship with God. And so it has that vertical as well as that horizontal component. And as we try to capture what this means, I want to draw you back to a passage that we just looked at. 
So remember the, remember the parable of the unforgiving servant, which we just spent some time thinking about. The king, the servant, the underservant. Notice the last words which I read earlier. I read over them quickly, but now I want to go back to those words. Verse 35 of Matthew 18, listen to what it says. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not, listen to this, if you do not forgive your brother, the last three words, from your heart, from your heart. Heart in the Bible is everything. It's the center of the personality. Your understanding comes from your heart. Your volition, your will comes from your heart. Your affections, your emotions, your desires comes from your heart. Jesus says that all evil in the world, every problem that we could ever see on the news, every problem that we could ever find in our own hearts, our own lives, our own marriages, parenting, families, everything comes from the heart. The heart we know is deceitful, it's wicked, it's corrupt, it is a dark, satanic playground, the human heart. But Christ changes all of that, as we saw in Titus. And when we come to this idea of forgiving others from our heart, this is what we learn. As mercy works itself out in our lives, it must be done from the inside, not as a religious observance or a show for others. That is what it means to have a pure heart. We must forgive people from in here. We must show mercy and do everything else that we've seen throughout this, this passage of God's word. We must do all of that from within. This goes for forgiveness and forgiving to the needy. So what does it say in Matthew 6, 1 to 2? Beware, what is, Jesus goes on to say this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. How many of us do that? I suppose we all kind of fall into that. But think about that. Let that settle. We'll get there soon enough. Practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Hey guys, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over here and feed this guy. I'll, I'll, I'll be back. I'll be back. I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna go help this person in need. Miserable person in need. Helpless. I'm gonna help them. That's the kind of thing that we maybe sometimes do, just announcing it. We don't, have, we don't probably use a trumpet, but we announce it. We let people know, you know, we're doing good. We're out here being a good person that they may be praised by others. In order, we do it in order to be praised by others. That is what characterizes those who do not have a pure heart. To be like that is to not have a pure heart. They do not do what they do sincerely because they, here's the key. They do not do it for God and for others. Remember the first two commandments, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. They do not do it for God or for others, but they do it for themselves. When we help people and sound it out and let everybody know it's all about us because we, we want people to think well of us. 
We want people to think that we're good people, that we're good Christians, that we're upstanding. We're always mulling over what people are thinking. And here's the question for you. How much of your time do you spend thinking about how you're being perceived by other people? All the time. That's a warning sign. That's a warning sign. In fact, I would say that's the first application for any of us as we come to this idea of being pure in heart. The first application is that we deal with the fact that we are always thinking about how we are perceived by other people. Deal with that. Get down into the heart and deal with that first because that is the great beginning. That is the warning sign. The opposite is what Jesus describes in verse three. Doing your works where? Before the eyes of God who sees in secret. That's the difference. Person who announces to everyone in the room, hey, I'm going over here to help someone. Look, 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 watch me do this. Doing it before your eyes. No concern for the eyes of God. The opposite of that is someone who is pure in heart. And this is someone who does everything they do, whether it is forgiving someone who sinned against them in grievous, horrific ways, forgiving them from the heart or giving to the needy, taking care of those who are miserable and helpless. All of this is done before the eyes of God. Coram Deo, before the face of God. That is how we live. Our call to worship was taken from Psalm 24, three to six. And I want you to notice this. The one who stands before the Lord has clean hands and a pure heart. We got that from Psalm 24. That kind of, that's kind of the background of what we have in this passage. And in verse four, it says this about this person. He does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. This is a heart that is honest and sincere. By the way, let me make this point. There is one person one person who is pure in heart, Jesus. That's it. There's only one person who's ever lived who did what he did entirely for God and for neighbor, always. Always dead to himself. Always living outside of himself. None of us do that perfectly, but the Lord Jesus did. And one day, by Christ, we will too, when we are made like him, when we see him as he is and are made entirely like him. But I want you to see this. In verse six of Psalm 24, we are told that this person who is pure in heart is one who seeks the face of the God of Jacob. So here's my point. His heart is pure because he seeks the face of God. And it, it, it is out of a life lived before the face of God that one can expect to see God. Here's the thing. People talk about, you know, you, talk, you ask people, are they going to go to heaven? You, you, you talk to people about, do they think they're going to go to heaven when they die? They have no regard for God. And here's the thing. Here's what heaven is. I'll give it to you like this. To see God. That's heaven. Oh, and that's awesome. There's absolutely nothing, no leisurely activity, no wonderful Indian buffet. That's my favorite, so I'll just go with that. No, no wonderful state of bliss in this life that could ever compare to this single reality that as the final verse of Amazing Grace says, when we've been there 10,000 years, it'll be as nothing. There is not one single thing that could compare to this, and that is to see God forever. He is the delight of our souls. 
He's all satisfying. That will be heaven. And what we're told here is that those who spend a lifetime, quorum Deo, those who spend a lifetime living before the face of God, seeking the face of God will one day see that very face. That is what it means to be pure in heart. And that is the blessedness of being pure in heart and growing in purity of heart. So how can you see into your own heart? Like, okay, well, I know that I'm not, that Jesus, that I'm far away from that. I'm far away from that. I mean, my motives are always twisted and our motives are always twisted. Our motives are always twisted. There's impurities and we're doing things. We're kind of like, well, you know, I mean, I, I was thinking about this while I did that. So I don't know that that, how pure that was. And we just, this constant state of introspection that drives us insane, some of us, and we just really don't know. We don't know maybe what our motives are. We don't even know what our heart is doing. How do we, how do we grow in that and therefore grow in purity of heart? The answer, I think, comes from Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. Listen to this. For the word of God, the Bible, the scripture, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You want to know what's in your heart? You have to read the word of God and meditate on it and pray through it. Make it your life. A person who spends no time in the Bible has absolutely no clue what is in his or her heart. No clue because it is sitting under that word of God as the spirit takes that scripture and begins to cut into your heart and pull up before you, before your very eyes, that which you never knew was in you. And it's when God does that work that you fall on your face in poverty of spirit and you realize how broken you are, how in need of God's grace, you are, and that's when we begin to grow in these beatitudes. That's when we begin to grow in all that we see here, when our hearts begin to crack open and God reveals to us who we really are. Now, as we finish up this morning, as we come to the end, what does all of this have to do with peace? And that leads to our final point for today as we come to verse nine, the last beatitude that we'll cover today, the reconciling, the reconciling. Verse nine, it says this, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. So how does peace fit in with what we've just talked about? Where's peace fit in all this? We've talked about mercy, We've talked about purity of heart. And now we come to this idea of being peacemakers. We come to this idea of peace. How does it fit in? 2 Timothy 2.22 says this. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So those who have a pure heart, those who call on the Lord, who seek his face, are those who have fled away from the passions that cause all the divisions and strife that we see in our lives. James tells us very clearly, where do, war, where do wars come from? Where do quarrels come from? Where do divisions come from? And by the way, that's in every relationship. 
that you currently have. Think about it. Think about all the relationships you have in your life, family members, the church, coworkers, and just extend that on friends and everyone else that you know. Quarrels, wars, divisions, battles, strife, all of that come from evil desires that wage war in the soul that are working in that person's heart, in your heart, in everyone's hearts. That's where discord, disharmony, disunity comes from. So those who have a pure heart, those who call on the Lord, who seek his face, are those who have fled away from all of this and have run to peace. And those who have done this have done so because they have been reconciled and made at peace with God. Remember the idea of extending that we were at earlier? The extending of mercy, we've, we've received mercy, so we extend mercy. Well, the same is true of peace. We receive peace from God, we get peace with God, and then we extend peace out horizontally to other people. And we, we seek to be at peace with others whom we come into contact with. So this is what it says in Romans 5.1. We have been justified by faith, so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, for he himself is our peace. Who? Jesus. Jesus is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. No longer Jew and Gentile, one new man in the place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So I wanna just end this morning with a few applications about peace. Now, a number of commentators say this, and I think it's important to remember this. This is not just peacekeeping. This is peacemaking. So in other words, this is not just about kind of keeping a, a state of peace around you. This is not just about kind of being at peace. This is about, it's not passive. It's about actively pursuing this thing called peace. Everywhere we look, every person we know, we are constantly pursuing peace with that person. We're pursuing peace between people, always thinking peace, 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 peace. By the way, this is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. All of these are just as mercy, is, so is peace. To belong to God, to be a son of God, a child of God, is to be one who reflects the character of the Father. And to do that is to be one who reconciles because God is the reconciling God. So I just wanna finish with these few applications. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Let me ask this question first. How often do you get excited when there's tension or controversy? That's a really good question, I think, because we've all seen that in our lives. Proverbs talks about gossip as being sweet to the soul. Sweet to the wicked soul, that is. It feels really good. And you've, you've experienced that, right? When you're around somebody and they begin to gossip about somebody else, and they're talking about how bad that person is. What is the first thing that the heart does? You begin to say, well, I'm not like that. You begin to think on yourself as being better, to, better than that person who's being slandered, who's being cut down, who's being gossiped. So here's the question, how excited, maybe, how warm do you begin to feel even when there's tension or controversy? The Christian should grieve when there is a lack of peace. 
wherever it may be found. Grieve, not be excited or enticed or lighthearted about the whole thing. What about evangelizing? This is peacemaking at the highest level. We think about making peace between people. We think about making peace between nations, between families, between communities. That, that's, all of that's important, but the highest level of peacemaking is that between humanity and God. And essentially, think about it this way. When you are evangelizing, Paul talks about this in Romans 10. He says that the people who bring peace, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. When we evangelize, when we tell someone about Jesus, we're being peacemakers. How so? We are, we are being used by God to bring peace between a sinner and a holy God. That's what evangelism is. It's peacemaking at the highest level. What about discipleship? To what extent are we helping people to see the implications of the gospel? That when they're not being merciful, they are saying, I have not been shown mercy. That when they are not being peaceful, they are saying, God has not reconciled me to himself. This is all about taking the gospel itself, mercy given to us by God, peace from God, and extending that outward and telling people constantly, this is what it means to be a Christian. Essentially, that's discipleship. Discipleship is this, applying the gospel to life. That's discipleship. Are we doing that? Are we engaged in the work of discipling? I think it also means stopping your tongue. James has a lot to say about the tongue and how it can be used for all kinds of evil in the world. And the chances are you've probably seen this most in your marriage, how your tongue and all the things you wanna say get you in trouble, whether you're a husband or a wife. It's a flaming fire, the tongue. So part of what it means to make peace is to Stop speaking. <laughs> Stop speaking. Oftentimes when everything inside of us says, I must speak. I must vindicate. I must make known what is on my mind. I must do it. Those are evil passions and desires that are waging war in our soul. And that is when self-control given to us by the Holy Spirit says, no, don't speak. Don't say a word. That is part, I think, of what it means to be a peacemaker. We must shut up if we are to make peace. And I think another implication of this is to go now and be reconciled to our brothers. Matthew 5, 21, Jesus describes a person who is offering something to God. And I wanna kind of plug this in there, singing a hymn, singing a song, listening now, you're not gonna, you don't have to get up right now, but listening to a sermon or praying a prayer, doing something that is an act of devotion to the Lord. And in the middle of doing that, right? In the middle of doing that, you realize that you are at odds with someone, particularly your brother. And here, I think that we, we apply that specifically to the church and, and even within your, your natural family. But you realize that you're at odds with somebody. Jesus says, stop, stop what you're doing. Just, just stop, stop singing, stop praying. Go, be reconciled to that person now. Don't wait, don't wait, do that now. So that's my plea for us who are peacemakers, for us who belong to Jesus. Leave here today and make peace. Make peace with all of those people in your life. You have to start somewhere. Make peace with those people in your life with whom you are estranged, with whom you, you are not reconciled. Do everything in your power, Jesus is telling us, 
to make peace between ourselves and that person. And even between others, are there people in our lives where we're the arbitrator? We're just standing between two people. How can we begin to say peace between those people? That is what it means to be a Christian in the world. That is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Loving our enemies, Jesus will go on to say in Matthew 5, verse 43. As I close this morning, I wanna take us back to the passage I quoted from John Piper's book at the very beginning, Colossians 3, 12 to 19. I want you to see how much the scriptures hold together. It's amazing when you read the Bible, you read the different books in the Bible. It's amazing to see all of the ways that these authors cohere with one another. They, they stick together. There is such an integrity, such a unity in the Bible. And this is what we see in Colossians 3, 12 to 19. Here's what I want you to see. You will see all of these Beatitudes here in this passage where Paul is just simply talking about the gospel and then applying it to life together in marriage and in the church. He says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. We've covered that one before and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, that's mercy. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Purity of heart, love, as we read from 1 Peter, perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. This is the life we've been called to, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what Jesus requires of us. This is what our king, if we were to walk up into his castle and stand before him with his glorious throne and his glorious crown, and we were to say, what must I do now, my Lord? He would say, this is what you are called to be and to do. Go. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the fact that Jesus, our Savior, stands in our place, that he, the perfect man, the, the perfectly merciful one, the merciful high priest, that he, the one who is perfectly pure in heart and untainted, undivided in his motives, perfectly seeking you and seeking the good of others. We thank you for this one who made peace, who is himself peace by the blood of his cross. We thank you that our righteousness is given to us from him and that before your throne, we stand pure and clean, not because we have cultivated these qualities, but because Jesus is these qualities and because through him, we have been reconciled to you. God, we thank you for this glorious gospel. And now by your spirit, you have given us the life of Christ in us. And God, we pray that we will live out the life of Christ, that the power of your spirit will be, will be evident to us, that we will take advantage of your word as it searches our hearts and as it, as it shows before our very eyes what is inside all the muck and the dirt and everything else that's in our hearts that remains hidden from our eyes as it stands now, but by your word, by your spirit can be revealed and ripped out of our lives for your glory and the good of our neighbor. God, this is what we ask for in response to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.